The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Nikaya Seeds. Nikaya is a shamanic practitioner and a drum maker. She's a priestess and co-author of a really excellent book called Moon Mysteries. She's also an ordained shamanic minister and a death doula. So obviously there's lots we could talk about, but today I'm following the thread of curiosity that I have about Nikaya's role as a teacher at the College of the Melissa Center for Sacred Beekeeping. I spoke with Nikaya online. She was at home in Vancouver, BC. So Nikaya, thank you for being here. And just as we get started, I'd like to ask you, what identities do you lead with? Oh, wow, what an interesting question. (laughs) Well, you know, I think it really depends on the time of day, maybe, or maybe the month. you know, and it's interesting, it, actually, it's so interesting you ask that. We, I've been working with my students, I, I have some, some I teach um, an apprenticeship in shamanism, and one of the things that we've been diving into is masks, and the masks that we put on in order to deal with, say, a grumpy sales clerk, or a police officer, and there's, there's a whole conversation there about identity, but I suppose if I were to sort of I imagine you're asking a little bit about me. So I'm a mother, I'm a beekeeper, um, I'm a shamanic healer, I'm a writer. I do all sorts of really great fun things, sacred beekeeper. But I don't know, I guess if I got philosophical about it, I might say those were all just depending on the day and the mask I'm put on. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's great. I I love that perspective of um, adornment. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I will put on this identity today. Yeah, adornment, depending on what the muse calls for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. So you brought up being a sacred beekeeper. Um, I guess before I ask you about bees specifically, can you unpack that identity a bit? What does sacred beekeeper mean, as say, as opposed to conventional beekeeper? Mm-hmm. Well, I got into beekeeping because of a sacred or divine calling. And so my approach to beekeeping from the very beginning always was about developing a connection to uh, these sacred insects. And, um, you know, of course that came from reading, you know, as one does, they get inspired. Um, and, and so for me, um, getting honey was really secondary. And so I know some people will come at beekeeping from a more conventional place. Uh, perhaps they want to start a business, they want to sell honey, um, or they need to pollinate their almond crop. Uh, for me, it had nothing to do with those things. And it was all about the sacred, divine aspects of the bee. And then the second, my second place of, um, the second way I came at it was environmental. So it was spiritual and then it was environmental and in that order. And I have a very dear friend who I began beekeeping with many years ago. And she came in from environmental first, 
I mean, closely followed by spiritual. Um, in fact, in some ways, one may not be able to untangle the two. But it was it was an interesting perspective for me to see her entry point and my entry point. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell me, I, I've always been fascinated with uh, bee mythology and, and the symbolism of bees and this idea of them representing life, perhaps, or, uh, and since my husband started beekeeping, you know, a few years ago, several years ago now, I guess, uh, and we started to recognize that there was sort of what we would call conventional beekeeping. It's kind of like conventional farming, meaning chemicals. And then there's organic or traditional beekeeping. I I had no idea about that until he started beekeeping and we wanted to do things more naturally. Uh, But it sort of started to take me down that sort of internet wormhole of studying what, how were bees traditionally regarded? Uh, We have kind of a whole lore around them um, these days because we want to save the bees, there's colony die off, etc. But I'm thinking more historically and from a mythological perspective in the mythic imagination, what can you tell me about how bees have been regarded through the ages? Mm -hmm. Well, we do know that 10,000 years ago, in Spain, we have the first record of uh, humans beekeeping. And what it is, it's a, it's a cave painting. And we have this image of this long, tall ladder with these, these figures climbing up to harvest honey from, I'm presuming up from either cave or cliff or something. And it, then it just goes from there. We have this rich, beautiful, mythological history of, of how humans regarded the bee. And so, We know that um, it makes sense that in Egypt, because it's such a rich center, culturally speaking, they recorded so much that in Egypt, we have, you know, some of the oldest literatures in the world mention um, the sacredness of the bee. In fact, they believed that Ra, the sun god, so if you imagine the sun is, I mean, when the sun comes up in the morning, that's their god. And that when when, when the sun god Ra, cries, uh, what comes out are actually honeybees brought down to the earth. So there's this really beautiful connection that, that somehow honeybees were a gift given to humans. Mm-hmm. And then if, if we go along a little bit later in history, you know, beekeeping was practiced on a massive scale. It was practiced all throughout ancient Greece, Sumeria, Crete, into the Mediterranean. We have it in Spain. Of course, we have massive amounts of records in in history from Egypt. Um, You know, the ancient belief that honey was this golden currency. And then, of course, there's an entire beautiful, rich history of um, goddess worship Mm. to the honeybee. So the ancient Artemis worshipers um, were called the Melissa, and they were the priestesses of the bee goddess. And I could talk for days and days about it. So (laughs) (laughs) I love that because, of course, Melissa, you know, um, hearkening to the etymology of mellifluous, which is like flowing like honey and all those wonderful things. You know, it was so interesting when you said uh, that there was the Spanish uh, cave art, because that brought me back to, I guess, about two, two and a half years ago now uh, for our honeymoon, my husband and I, we went actually with my daughter as well. We went to 
uh, Europe for two months and we spent a month in France. We went down to the caves um, near the Pyrenees at Neo, where you can still go inside and see the real paintings. And it, I, it just occurred to me now, we were so delighted and fascinated to look up at the mouth of the cave and see a whole bunch of honeycomb, which you know some had been scraped away because it was such a large um, hive up there. And, and we just kind of thought like, oh great, bees, because we keep bees, we notice them. But uh, you know, that beautiful connection that of course, the, the people who were going into the caves for sacred purposes probably would have thought of bees as sort of sacred guardians or at least sacred envoys from some magical place because how are they creating this beautiful magical nectar? Which is, uh, yeah, I love that you, you brought me back there. And of course, Artemis is a huge favorite of mine. I would love it if you actually <laughs> just talked a bit more about <laughs> Artemis and the bee. Like what, if we were to see a bee, on an old Greek urn or something, would we then presume that that was a Melissa who was worshiping? Would we, or, or was there something else there? What would we, what should we be thinking of when we see bees in any kind of symbolic way? Oh, wow. Well, that's a very deep, rich, fantastic. <laughs> and it makes me want to weave in a couple different things. So we, there's this beautiful image of the, the, the Melissa priestesses, and they have these beautiful sort of triangular shaped skirts and you can see there's tears on them the way the stripes on a honeybee's um, abdomen would look and um, they're dancing and their heads don't exist all there is if you look at the image is this is these bees and so this is where I'm going to start to weave things in a little bit so you mentioned you were um, on honeymoon in Spain okay so honeymoon <laughs> oh yeah from the ancient practice of making honey into mead and of course, couples were given big jugs of mead to drink on their honeymoon, which would loosen them up and presumably lose <laughs> a child. And so, and so making mead is this really ancient thing. And of course, the bee priestesses or the Melissa would have been those in charge of, of crafting the sacred honey wine. And of course, if again, going back to that image, so they're literally off their heads, literally because they don't have heads, because what they would do is they would drink mead and they would go into ecstatic trance and they would dance and then they would have visions. Mm. And so this image it's an absolutely classic image of, of these bee priestesses dancing and it, their heads are bees. They're not, you know, because they're off their heads. So cool. Yeah, it's, you know, and so even if we take a look in, in France, we have the fleur de lis and some um, cultural anthropologist or historian has, has made the connection between the shape of the fleur de lis and the honeybee. Mm. And that if you superimpose the honeybee onto it, it, it's exactly the same shape. And so you find honeybee images kind of snuck in. Of course, you know how they did. <laughs> find these little honeybee images snuck in in this sort of mystical, um, maybe not, well, I always think Da Vinci Code. You know, there's <laughs> in there because there's some sort of secret hidden something or other that, you know, mere mortals don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's very cool. I love the idea that there have been codes or that the images are encoded with some kind of ancient knowledge we know that of course we should be worshiping these envoys from the sun, that sort of thing. So you talked also about uh, being a shamanic practitioner. What role then does your shamanic practice play in your sacred beekeeping? How, what, like in a kind of technical or practical way, what, what does that look like? Mm, good question. <clears throat> well, it's not exactly something that I could ever teach, but for myself personally, it was my entry point into beekeeping. 
And so as a, a shamanic person, keeping bees um, and having an animist perspective that everything has spirit and my, um, my ability to communicate shamanically with, with anything really, flowers, trees, bees, allowed me to start a dialogue or uh, a communication with the bees that I work with. And so through that, I was able to keep them in a really different manner. I allowed them to guide me. And, and so there was that whole level. And then of course, on a, on a more personal level, even before I started beekeeping, journeying shamanically and working with my ancestors, I discovered that my personal blood ancestors kept bees. Mm. And so, because um, my part of my lineage is uh, Ukrainian Romanian. So we, my family calls themselves the Romanians from, or the Ukrainians from Romania. If you look that up, it's a thing. <laughs> you know, it basically has to do with moving borders. <laughs> so my great grandfather came to Canada from Romania. And, um, you know, there's a beautiful, rich European history in, in U the Ukraine and Lithuania of, of beekeeping. And so there was this ancestral connection for me. And so as I journeyed shamanically with my ancestors, there was information coming through from them. And then as I was working on a more animus level with my actual bees, sitting in the bee yard, working with them, they were giving me um, messages and information on everything from everything from I would go to the bee yard in a bit of a state and at first I just thought oh I'll just meditate I'll just sit with the bees and then messages would start to come through and they would actually start showing me things I mean the most goosebump kind of amazing things would come through and so yeah there was just this beautiful string that was being pulled through all of my shamanic work that had to do with the bees and and so then from there it it turned into this really beautiful thing I mean everything just sort of snowballed after that there was this connection with the College of the Melissa in Ashland Oregon um, our own shamanic society here in Vancouver I had this idea that um, maybe the society uh, as a member of the society that I would keep bees for the society mm. And so uh, one of the hives was designated for the Sacred Circle of Great Mystery Shamanic Society. And the honey from that would come to our ceremonies. Mm. And then that turned into this beautiful whole piece that has to do with our shamanic conference and the bee, uh, the honey, when we do get honey, um, is kept for either sacred ceremony or it's um, gifted. Mm. or we do actually have a fundraiser that we do and the money goes to the children that we sponsor in Africa and the wolf sanctuary in Alberta. So, you know, it's turned into this really beautiful thing where the, the honey has become medicine in my spiritual community. So mm, that's so beautiful. Well, and I have so many thoughts too of what you just said, because I, you know, sitting with the bees, it really has to be one of the most quickly trance inducing places I think you can be right I mean sitting with the bees is so meditative um you know the the sound the 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 forms they make the repetition you know it, it was such a uh wonderful thing to be sitting with the bees one time and realizing oh a beeline <laughs> you know like when you say you make a beeline for something it's because there is a track that they it's just like an airport right it's like oh I'm in the beeline that's why they keep thwacking me or you know they're trying to get me out of the way so so it, it is a really um uh, it's pretty easy, I think, 
for many people to develop a relationship. And there are fears, natural fears, of course, especially if you're allergic or believe you might be that sort of thing. And I know that it took us a while to approach our um, hive, you know, without being fully protected and that sort of thing. We were a little nervous at first. Um, but I was thinking as you were talking about the queen, have you had several queens now? Do they, do you get a different relationship or personality from each one when you're communicating with the hive? Is it always kind of a collective hive mind or sometimes are you kind of in direct connection just with that queen? I'd love to hear your relationship um, with those sort of different levels of your colony. Mm, such a beautiful question. Well, the queen, it definitely is a hive mind, I would say. So there is a queen and she, you know, if you name the queen, you name the hive. Mm. And so when there's a new queen, there's always a new name. And this is actually something that um, came through when I was working with the College of, when I, I'm still working, I suppose, with the College of the Melissa, because they always name their hives. Always, always, always. Every hive has its own personality. Mm -hmm. And so that, that tradition continued on where um, at the beginning, you know, some of my hives would be named, but not all of them. As soon as, as you know, as a beekeeper, as soon as you get to know that hive, you know the queen and therefore you know the entire hive mind. Mm. So we've had Queen Baudica. Mm. Uh, we've had Hive Baudica and um, we've had, which is a very fierce hive. And yes, if it, for, for those who don't know Baudica or who, who might have heard her name as Boudica, can you, can you just give a quick synopsis? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So she was a very fierce female warrior, uh, Roman, I believe, and she uh, led an entire army. I mean, she was killed in the end, but just the, the tenacity of her, there's many different um, historical fiction novels on her. And, and she was in the UK. So for folks who are who feel drawn to more of uh, a Celtic or, you know, if their ancestry is the British Isles, mm -hmm. we're talking, you know, really a predecessor to Victoria. And I've actually read that, that uh, Boudicca or Baudicca is, is one of the ancient origins of, of the name Victoria, like victorious, because she was such a triumphant leader. Oh, wow. She's, yeah, she's, she's pretty badass, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so sorry, back, yeah, so back to your hives, yes. Yeah, so, so then there would be the fierce one. Now I've had, I've only had one hive in all my years of beekeeping that was fiercer than that. And that hive was named Callie. Mm. But then we've also had more gentle hives. And so, you know, even one hive that we named Avalon because they just loved my apple tree so much. Mm -hmm. Avalon being the, the Misty uh, Isles, um, specifically in Glastonbury area of the UK and um, known for its apple trees. So, you know, just depending on the, you know, and also, you know, once it doesn't take much to just sit and tap into the hive and, and sort of allow a name to come forward so yes so that's that would be how I would say the connection to the queen has come and naming mm. so I would imagine you know for having been a, a sacred beekeeper for so long then you probably have lost some hives and colonies then what what was that like for you oh the first time oh devastating um we had a very elaborate funeral <laughs> we you know um the, the whole hive had died 
the, the first time. And, you know, as a bee mother, I call myself a bee mama. Mm-hmm. So I get a bit fierce when the skunks are around and the wasps. And, and so as a bee mama, it was you know, it was really devastating and, and it was the whole hive and, you know, we had to dump them all. We had a little burial and we dug a hole in the, in this garden and we put them all in and we threw flowers. It was very, you know, but then, you know, as any farmer, as anyone who works with, with animals or insects or whatever, we know that it happens. And so, um, there have been years where I haven't lost, but there've been devastating years like last year where the wasps after our three year drought, the wasps were completely and utterly out of control. Mm. I mean, <sighs> devastatingly so. And I had two hives la- the last season that were completely almost decimated by the wasps before I even went into the season. So and- for people who don't know, wasps are carnivorous and yes. they are the like jerks of the, <laughs> and, and they're not, they're not pollinators, right? So I don't know what wasps are for, but they, they actually, I read recently that there's been a study into insect personality and that, so I actually do think that wasps are just jerks. They're just <laughs> like the douchebags of the insect world. So yeah. to know that like, you don't need to kill the bees, but you can kill the wasps. That's okay. That's right. People come in and they, they want to uh, attack. And I guess they go after both the honey, but they're also carnivorous. So they'll, they'll actually just like kill bees and like yeah. call yeah. them off, right? And at the yeah. end of the season, so the end of the summer season, they want protein. Right. So they're eating the, the bees left, right, and center. And, and the larvae and stuff. They're just raiders. Yeah. yeah. So they raided my hives and the one d- did die. And I thought that the second one going into the winter would be strong enough. But, you know, mama has a feeling. <laughs> and I went out to check the hive early in the season, like October. And um, it was after a really cold spell. So maybe it was late October, early November. And there'd been a frost and a drop um, below zero, and they just weren't able to make a good cluster ball, and they would just all die. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's, I've never um, had that happen so early in the season. Mm-hmm. And so um, I didn't, I didn't have hives. And then um, knowing that I was traveling to Africa this past summer for five weeks, right in the, the massive beekeeping season where I needed to be there the most, I actually decided for the first time in I think six or seven years to take a season off. And it's the first time I've done that. So I took a season off and I've rebuilt my entire bee garden and, and done cleaned up all my bee boxes. And so I'm ready to start again this upcoming spring. Mm. And so will you get on like uh, here in Victoria, there's a swarm list you can get on. And if you, and if your colony, <clears throat> pardon me, has died off, you get to be at the top of the list. <laughs> and so do they have something similar in Vancouver where you can get a swarm or will you buy a queen and sort of try to start all over? Yeah, well, if there is, I'm not aware of it. it there very well might be here something like that here in Vancouver. Um, my experience with swarms here is just sort of being if if you find one, you know there's someone close by. It's etiquette to ask if that might be their bees. Right. Otherwise, it's your swarm to keep. A little bit different here in the city, I think, maybe than in the country. Right. It's you'd be a little hard, more hard pressed to just find a random swarm. Although it's probably like that in the country too. Uh, so, in I'm probably will buy um, a couple nukes from. From some of the local people here that so that's like a nucleus or a nuclear or whatever when you when you say nukes right you're getting kind of like the start yeah. of, a, of a new uh hive yeah so you get three or four frames and that would include um larva the larva the baby the and the queen 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So much to learn if you if you aren't a beekeeper. I, I'm curious, when you were in Africa, did you happen to see any um, bee skeps or, or any bee stuff there that was new or different or interesting for you? Yeah, I'm always, whenever I travel, absolutely every single time, no matter where I go, that's the first thing I want to know about. Um, I wasn't able to actually go to any um, apiaries, which is the term we use for more than one hive. <laughs> It's funny to think that I have an apiary here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I did, however, it was one of those interesting synchronicities. I was staying with family. My husband's family's from Uganda, um, Uganda and um, Nairobi. So I was in Nairobi with family. And, you know, I had mentioned, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in finding some African honey, or at least, you know, if I could go to an apiary and have a little tour, do you guys know anything? And um, my cousin-in-law's husband perks up and says, oh, well, I'm totally involved with this entire um, African beekeeping society group where all these beekeepers have supported each other in sustainable beekeeping. And he makes, um, he makes bottles. He's like, and, and, and I came up with, he was so proud of himself. I came up with this design of, of um, honey bottle and, and that's how I know them because I make their bottles. And then he, he proceeds to pull all these gorgeous um, circular round bottles out of the cupboard that had a flat side on, on I suppose the side of it. So you could tip it over and the honey would just, yeah. tip. he was so proud of this thing. <laughs> so um, I was able to look up their website and read all about what they were doing. And of course I brought back gifts and mm. bottles and bottles and bottles of, of the honey. And um, they had only just recently moved their main location from Nairobi into someplace really obscure that would have been hard for me to get to. So Sadly, I was not able to go, but I did make a nice connection and, and I did bring honey home. Absolutely. And it did so different. Oh, beautiful. That's really exciting. Now you said the word or the term uh, sustainable honey or sustainable beekeeping. And, and I do kind of, I just want to circle back to that briefly, because in the beginning you were talking about how um, your goal was not to pull honey. And this is another thing I think for people who are interested in keeping bees and they're new and sort of learning from YouTube or what have you, that's an important distinction. Um, I, you know, can you just talk a little bit then about um, how the practice of sacred beekeeping is different from conventional beekeeping and what would make um, beekeeping sustainable or not? Mm, okay. Well, sustainable suggests long-term. It suggests that we beekeep in such a way that we are taking everything into consideration, not just our own selves and our desire to have our bees live, but the long-term goal or um, sustainability of our earth, which would include the use of pesticides and also the bees. So we now know that a lot of our beekeeping practices just simply haven't worked. And, and that's why we're dealing with colony collapse disorder um, directly tied into the use of pesticides. Now, not necessarily pesticides that we're giving the bees, but neonicotinoids that are being given to the plants. So given all the information we have now, we really, uh, for me personally, I really feel like it's it's not um it's a no brainer. It's not a choice that I would you know choose to make. And at a very basic level, you know we we don't spray our weeds or our, our lawns, and we would hope our neighbors would do the same thing. 
Do you mind if I go on and on about this a little bit? No, I, I would like it if you would, because okay. I think a lot of people don't realize that there is sustainable beekeeping versus not sustainable beekeeping, and they don't realize why they should be buying their honey from the local farmer's market as opposed to off the shelf in the, the grocery store. So please take, take your time. Well, there's a fabulous book for anyone who really wants to get in depth with this called The Honey Trail. And I can give you the more information at the end of the show. Um, about how a lot of the honey, a significant portion of honey you buy off the shelf isn't actually even honey, particularly if it comes from China. So that's a whole other conversation. Uh, it's mixed with other things and it's really easy to replicate honey and which is really sad. And then of course we have, we take into consideration where the honey's coming from. So again, if you've got honeybees targeting the nectar, which is the, you know, I guess what one might call the fat of a, of a plant, you know, the way um, we understand now that fish can really, their fat can carry a lot of pesticides and things that aren't good for the human body. When you eat fat, it's a concentrated amount of that pesticide. So when we have bees that are specifically gathering nectar and pollen from say a giant almond orchard in California that's just sprayed to high heaven, the honey that they're bringing into their hive is gonna be completely different honey than some little Joe beekeeper who's, you know, bees fly within a three mile radius in any direction. So I always say, if we can just take care of our three miles, it's the one thing that helps to not bring complete overwhelm. We can each, every person took care of their little three miles, it would all be good. So um, going back to sustainable beekeeping, what does that look like? It looks like taking care of our three mile radius. Um, it looks like educating friends, family, and neighbors on their three mile radius. And then of course, there's another whole aspect, which is to treat or not to treat our own honeybees. So honeybees get treated with different um, potions and lotions throughout <laughs> the year. And, uh, you know, they are all fairly natural, for example, like formic acid, which is one of the things we give the bees. It's actually something that they create themselves. It's just, it's been isolated, targeted, and it's something that we give the bees to kill mites, which can become a problem. And so that's a whole other more political conversation. You know, some would say we've created this problem. And so if we don't treat our bees, they'll die. And, and, in a, in a sense, that's a little bit true. And so it's kind of a problem that we've created that we kind of have to keep up. Um, other more holistic organic beekeepers, now for getting really, really um, not fringy, fringy, but um, a little bit even more natural, if you will, believe that if you can generate um, generations of bees, they will become, they will develop their own resistances. And that what's happened is that we've bred the resistance out of them, kind of like we've done with antibiotics in our own bodies. So we need to, so what a lot of these beekeepers do is, so for the small one like me, where I might have at the most, at a max giant season, I might have four boxes of hives. Um, I might be able to do this, but when, when a person like myself only has one or two boxes of the hives going into a season, it's really hard to not treat them at all because chances are good. I'll lose all my hives. Right. Cause you need a critical mass because the bees need enough to keep them warm through the winter on less food. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, I treat it on, for the last five years only with, with formic acid, no oxalic acid, nothing else, just formic acid. And I might do that twice a year, but ideally only one time. 
and that's been really great. I haven't had, you know, I did have some pretty major mite problems a few years ago, but then the wasps came in. So mm -hmm. some people, when they have maybe more like six hives or 10 hives, will say, these four, I'm not going to treat at all. And it's, and it's okay, I can take the risk of losing them to breed bees that will become self-resistant. And then you split those hives into two, and now you have two hives and six hives, and 10 hives and so forth of bees that have over the time become, developed their own resistance to things. Mm -hmm. And so larger, a little bit bigger, it doesn't have to be a large scale, but a little bit bigger than myself are really doing that organic beekeeping where they're, you know, not treating at all because they can kind of risk maybe losing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful thing to do. And I, I think, you know, if we have the opportunity to really try our hardest not to treat, you know, it's a good thing to do. Um, and, you know, we all know that the minute you treat the hives, any honey they make after that isn't, you don't need it. Mm. That says something that mm -hmm. once you give those chemicals, that honey doesn't get pulled. Right. For human consumption. Right. Right. Well, and then there's a whole other thing too about do you feed? I had no idea that, that conventional beekeepers feed their bees sugar so yeah. they can get a surplus of honey. I was like, well, wait a second here. What? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've only gotten a few jars of honey in the years that we've yeah. had. Um, but uh, it kind of just makes sense to me because I think that ancestrally we had a much lower sugar diet this is the kind of thing would have lasted a way longer time as you said you would have been using it as medicine in sacred practice we we wouldn't have such a a, a palate that's so oriented towards sweetness so that a couple of jars you know that that easily could have lasted a year you know for a family i could i so once you're around bees for a while you start to realize like wow even the thing that we consider uh, a, a symbol of wholesome naturalness we've somehow pressed into service and distorted you know and 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 you know what what's a good beekeeper to do but sort of start from scratch and 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 also learn how to take the losses so just as we tie this up i i want to ask you a, a, a tricky question the last question on the numinous podcast for this season is uh, oriented towards you know shadow issues of life. It's you know it's been a hard 2016 was a hard year, <laughs> and and I've been working with grief and rage pretty um, uh, devotedly for about 18 months, and I think it's 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 something that's really prepared me for kind of a collective long dark night of the soul. And when I think about losing a bee colony, when I think about colony collapse, it's not just that you lose the relationship with those bees, it's that it's a signal of a larger uh, disillusion, you know, the, 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 the breaking down of things that we thought we could rely on collectively. So I'd love to ask you about how you personally cope with grief and rage. It's such a, it's such a powerful question, and it'll be interesting to see the series of your shows to hear what people say because we all deal with it so differently. Twenty sixteen has been a really interesting year, and I find that I I come at grief and rage from two different perspectives. So there's, I have a lot of grief and rage about what's going on in the world right now, and instantly it goes to overwhelm. And actually, for that in particular, when I'm really thinking about a global, the grief, the collective grief on a global level, 
actually, it truly, honestly, sincerely is the bees that bring me back. If I can tend to my three acres, or, you know, if I can donate to the soup tent that we run, if I can do something right here and now, then that's all I can do. And that really helps the overwhelm. It really helps um, to deal with that. Now on a personal level, when I have something that comes up personally that either makes me rage or grieve, um, you know, really it's just about that still point. And I can't honestly say that in a really messy moment, I'm going straight to the still point. <laughs> Um, I, maybe few, but few of us maybe can, but knowing it's there, knowing I can access it and remembering that is really, for me, the only way I can really come at those really intense, powerful things that I feel that we're validated to have. It's just how we deal with them in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And you also shared a, a lot of resources. The Honey Trail is one of the books. I'll link to that in the show notes. And I know you have other resources as well. You also mentioned the College of the Melissa in Ashland, Oregon, where you are a, a teacher there as well. So all of those things will be in the show notes. And um, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and your passion for sacred beekeeping. Thanks for being on the show, Nakaya. Thank you, Carmen. It's been enlightening. That was enlightening. There were a lot of really cool um, stories of the folklore and mythology of bees that I really appreciated from that. But uh, I would like to credit uh, my household beekeeper, Reuben Anderson, and uh, welcome him back on for a rubination about sacred beekeeping. Welcome back to the show, Reuben. Thank you very much. What did you think? Uh, first of all, Carmen, I would like to know if you think I have a mellifluous voice. Absolutely. I tell you all the time. You have a great radio voice. It's very mellifluous. Uh, so that was wonderful. All of the roots of, uh, of honey, like mellif mellifluous and Melissa. Honeymoon. And honeymoon, yeah. Aww, yeah. Yeah, just wonderful. Um, wow, I, I don't have uh, thoughts so much as just kind of little anecdotes, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of come to mind. And uh, so also I want to say the uh, honeybees being the tears of the sun god Ra. I know. I'm going to think about that every time I'm outside know, <laughs> in the right? sunshine. I know. She, Nakaya, I just want to sort of shout out to her again or like throw to her for a second because uh, I've done one of her drum making workshops hmm. which was really fantastic and she's got a million of these hmm. she's so she's so great with just kind of sliding in relevant little anecdotes hmm. um, and little spiritual teachings that are you know quite cross-cultural mm -hmm. which I really appreciate mm -hmm. anyway what 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 made it what did it make you think of um just going further on that actually uh, um it's an interesting, I, I guess I've noticed as we and, and I guess more me uh, start trying to approach life in a more pagan way, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I find little anecdotes like, like the, the tears or honeybees uh, are very powerful and fit easily into life. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't actually cost you anything to see honeybees as being tears of the sun. No, but it enriches it, the experience yeah, so much, doesn't it? Enriches it enriches it beautifully. 
Yeah, yeah. you're so. you're really um you're you're really coming along in your interest <laughs> in spirituality. The difference between like our first date, or even mm-hmm. when I first met you, you know, more than ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, being able to see spirit in so many things, you, you really are a natural born pagan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what anecdotes did you remember? Um, so first of all, um, my great, great grandmother kept bees as did her son, my great grandfather. Um, my, uh, my North American ancestors are largely Mormons and the state symbol of Utah is actually the beehive. That's right. The, uh, like the skep. The, the skep. Yeah. yeah the, which is for people who don't know what a bee skep is, it's that kind of old timey vintage, um, woven, how would you describe it? Like it's, it's a yeah, cloche it's a... kind of shape. It's a bell shape mm-hmm. that's woven just like in Winnie the Pooh. Right. Yeah. yeah. The Winnie the Pooh style. So they're made out of straw. Usually they can also be made out of mud or that's the state symbol of utah state symbol of utah is is the beehive because there's so much about the 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 family and and the 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 food and the production they were huge agriculturalists yes and and still are mm -hmm, and still are um so yeah so i have um i actually have this family this bloodline of beekeepers as well and uh apparently my great great grandmother could work the bees entirely without a veil or without gloves um she would just go out and kind of talk to them and and Mm -hmm. (laughs) open the hives. Uh, But my great-grandfather would get chased across the yard uh, by the bees. (laughs) Uh, And I just heard like a couple days ago that they've, science now says that bees can recognize human faces. Oh, wow. So uh, Amazing. You know, that reminds me that my grandmother, uh, you know, as as our reader, our our listeners wouldn't know this, but uh, I was raised for the the formative young years of my life by my my mother and her three uh, sisters and my grandmother and my great grandmother. Mm. So all of us, seven ladies in a three bedroom house with one bathroom. <laughs> three of those ladies were beauticians. You can imagine it was a bit nutty in there. Anyway, she had a big garden and there would often be um, beehives in the yard. Mm. And I think actually. You know, sometimes she'd be out there, but I think it was actually the neighbor hmm. who brought them over. Um, so they, they, it's funny. I, they were just part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. They didn't really think of this as like, oh, yeah, it's something that my people do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you've never mentioned that before. That's interesting. Yeah. I think you would have been playing out in the garden with bees all around you. Yeah, totally. Even as a little girl. Yeah. Hmm. How nice. Uh, a couple of things. So I found it interesting that she kept saying keeping bees hmm. uh, because... Keeping bees is a word or a f- an outlook that is a little contentious in the, as she said, the uh, more fringy uh, right. <laughs> bee circles. Yeah, it's sort of a colonial term, right, mm-hmm. of possessiveness, which we're trying to unpack a lot of the possessiveness that we have in our language. So mm-hmm. what's the alternative or what's it? Well, she did, she did say working with bees, oh, yeah. um, but it could be living with bees. It could be, you know priestess of bees i, I don't yeah. know like you know something that revering uh, the bees yeah. okay yeah yeah working with bees mm-hmm. that's a cool way of thinking of it i um and then okay continuing with the with the thoughts i one of the things that i really noticed about bees is that uh they're kind of a they're they're real mental gymnastics uh because I think as humans, we try to anthropomorphize everything. And mm. so, and it's a lot easier with like dogs and cats and horses and stuff. We kind of think we can understand what they're doing. Uh, but bees have a totally different social structure mm. and totally different uh, kind of goals and processes. So like at the end of, in the fall, 
they will kick all their brothers out to die. Oh yeah. You know, and, and that's just, they, they do that. That seems practical to them. Right. And so, you know, so when we are, are trying to get in the mind, I'm making air quotes of the bees, it's, you, you have to, it's, uh, they're different species. Like yeah. they're a whole different, you know, they're not mammals, they're insects. So it's, And their social structure mm-hmm. is extremely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I loved it. That's great. It was wonderful. Can I tell you something so cool that I learned? uh, So, our listeners wouldn't know this, but I've been taking a course in uh, lost civilizations of old Europe. Hmm. uh, And of course, much of the archaeology has uh, been, um, and and the research really since like the 60s has been buried by Hmm. patriarchal academia. Mm -hmm. So, some of the work is from Maria Gambutis and others, but just in 2010, guess. What they dug up <laughs> on Crete, they found uh, twin graves. So there was like a grave behind a grave that was um, to fool, like the one in front was to fool the grave robbers. Hmm. Um, but anyway, the woman that they ex- excavated was draped in thousands of gold beads, about one inch long, in the shape of bees. Wow. Not joking, and it's from like the seventh century. So this is like wow. twenty seven hundred years ago. Hmm. She was this high ranking uh, f- woman, this hmm. priestess, obviously, with these inch long gold gold foil bee beads. Wow! Isn't that spectacular? <laughs> Just in my mind. I, anyway, I was very excited to learn that recently, mm-hmm. quite a long time after I recorded the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I want to say is. Uh, Nikaya brought up Boudicca, mm-hmm. and I just want to make one small correction there because actually Boudicca is not Roman. She is a Celtic queen, mm-hmm. and um, she's so awesome that I think all women and girls should know about her because she actually led a revolt against the Romans, and she she laid waste to like <laughs> some of the major cities, including Londinium. And uh, left like 80,000 Roman soldiers dead. Hmm. So um, I just wanted to correctly attribute her, her work because I don't think she'd appreciate being called Roman. And mm-hmm. um, I'm sure Nakaya knows that in the back of her mind somewhere, but mm-hmm. was focused on the bees. So I just wanted to um, shout out to Boudicca. Mm-hmm. Badass Boudicca. Uh, absolutely. There's links in the show notes to the uh, things we talked about today and the books and also uh, to Nakaya and her book, Moon Mysteries and her workshops. And, uh, yeah, I really want to thank her for being on the show. And we have so much other stuff we could talk about. She's a death doula. Mm. Yeah, so many mm. cool things. So in uh, the spirit of Boudicca, let's do a shout out to our listeners in England mm. today. East Anglia, if there's <laughs> any there in particular. Uh, thank you so much for spending time uh, to all the, the listeners in England. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School. If you want to know when registration reopens in June, just go to my website and uh, get on my newsletter. That's how you'll find out. And while you're there, you'll see that there are uh, wilderness quests that I'll be leading with my trusty assistant, uh, Ruben, and they're happening in May and August. Get all the details at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-B-A-G. NOLA. Until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.